Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. If you have a Bible handy, I'd invite you to open it to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. If you had the chance to travel back to any point in time, when would you go? Would it be to New Year's Eve, 1999? Or 1989 Berlin? 1969 Woodstock? 1969 On the Moon? 1789 Paris? 1759 Quebec City? Perhaps 1517 Wittenberg? All of these moments would seem strange to us, but at least the events that occurred at these times are considered important to Westerners. But how if we were to travel to the distant past, to a part of the world where the culture is extremely different from our own? How about the capital of the Roman province of Judea around the year 30 AD? As we seek to understand today's gospel, I invite you to accompany me on a journey back in time to the turbulent, mysterious, and intriguing world of first century Jerusalem. Today's gospel is the end of a long conversation between Jesus and the disciples. Actually, it's a really long response on the part of Jesus to a question that the disciples put to him at the beginning of chapter 24. Ever since Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he has been spending his days in the temple. On Wednesday afternoon of Holy Week, Jesus leaves the temple for the last time, and his disciples contemplate the beauty of the sacred buildings as they head down into the Kidron Valley. Jesus remarks gravely, Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. That's Matthew 24, verse 2. Once they reach the summit of the Mount of Olives, across from the Temple Mount, the disciples ask, When will this be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? With historical hindsight, we can give a straightforward answer, to the first half of the question anyway. Almost precisely 40 years after Jesus spoke those words, in the year 70 AD, the Romans did indeed destroy the temple and the city of Jerusalem. But it's the second half of the disciples' question that is tricky. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Matthew 24, verse 3. At this point, we realize, perhaps with horror, that we have wandered into a theological minefield. Indeed, the end times has always been a source of fascination and controversy among Christians. Many believers have attempted, and continue to try, to predict the moment of Jesus' return. Matthew 24, 36 notwithstanding. American preacher Harold Camping predicted in 2005 that the rapture would occur on May 21st, 2011, and that the world would come to an end five months later, on October 21st. In the months leading up to that date, teams of Camping's followers went across the world to warn people to convert before it was too late. I came across the Montreal team one day as I was walking down St. Catherine Street. After an interesting conversation with a young man who had been recruited into the group only a few months previous, I asked him for his email address and promised to write him on May 22nd, the day after the rapture was supposed to happen. I did indeed write to that man, encouraging him to find a church that practiced a less ambitious method of interpreting scripture. I'm still waiting for a response to that email. As for Harold Camping, he passed away in December 2013, and finally found himself in the presence of Jesus. I'm sure his eschatology has now been straightened out. Now I realize that I've opened a can of worms by mentioning the word rapture. If anyone wants to further discuss that idea some other time, I would be happy to have that conversation, as long as it's not by email. But what did the disciples mean when they asked, 
when will this be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The King James Version of the Bible translates the Greek word ion here as world, the end of the world. It used to be fashionable for biblical scholars to point out that Jesus had made a mistake similar to that of Harold Camping. He had predicted the end of the world within a generation of his death, and obviously this didn't happen, and the world has continued to rumble on for 2,000 years now, since the time of Jesus. However, it was the scholars who were mistaken. First century Jews, like Jesus and Paul and all the rest, didn't believe that at the end, the world would disappear in a puff of smoke. No. First century Jews were waiting for the end of this present evil age, and the beginning of the age to come. As early as the prophet Isaiah, we find the concept of a new creation. And despite the fact that the early church quickly became a predominantly Gentile community, the biblical and Jewish idea of the age to come made its way into the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, which ends with the words, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So it wasn't Jesus who had proffered a false prophecy. It was the scholars who had failed to understand what Jesus and the disciples meant by the end of the age. So, the disciples weren't asking about the end of the space-time universe. What they, and most of their contemporaries, were hoping for was the arrival of the age to come, for the kingdom of God to replace the pagan kingdoms of this world, for Israel to be delivered from all the Gentile empires that had oppressed her ever since Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians and the people had been exiled in the 6th century BC. The hope of the disciples was the same as that of Daniel, who had been taken to Babylon all those centuries before, and had had a dream of monsters crawling out of the ocean to attack the people of God until one like a son of man is exalted and comes on the clouds to the Ancient of Days and is enthroned beside him, and then the monsters are judged and destroyed. <clears throat> and the people of the saints of the Most High are given an everlasting kingdom. And this is all recorded in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's vision of the vindication of the Son of Man and his people after a period of suffering at the claws of the imperial beasts, sustained the people of God during the long centuries of pagan rule, and also led, then like now, to much speculation about exactly when Daniel's dream would come true, and how the people of God should best prepare for that day. When will the Son of Man be exalted on the clouds of glory? When will we be set free from our pagan oppressors? When will the final judgment occur and God's people be justified over against the Gentile nations? When will justice finally be served? All this and more is contained within the disciples' question. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, during Holy Week in Jerusalem, Jesus stayed in the village of Bethany at the home of one Simon the leper. We see this described in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. Every morning, Jesus would leave Bethany, make his way down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, and up onto the Temple Mount. Every day, crowds of pilgrims gathered to witness Jesus' debates with the religious leaders. All these people had come to the capital to celebrate Israel's national holiday, Passover. And by flocking around Jesus, they prevented, for the time being, his arrest by the temple authorities. Each evening, Jesus would leave the temple, go back across the valley, up and over the Mount of Olives, and back to Bethany. On Wednesday evening, on their way back to Simon's place, Jesus and the disciples stopped at the summit of the Mount of Olives in order to have a conversation before returning to Bethany for supper. Jesus tells today's story during the darkest hours of his life. Within 24 hours, he will be arrested, and within 48 hours, he will be dead. 
We can imagine Jesus and the disciples snuggled amid the olive groves as the sun dipped below the Jerusalem skyline and cast cross-shaped shadows on the spires of the temple. Let's try and catch the tail end of their conversation, which begins in Matthew 24, verse 3. Imagine the bleeding of sheep interrupting Jesus as he addresses the disciples. Look over there! It's a shepherd leading his flock into a sheepfold next to the olive grove and separating the goats from the sheep. It is still customary in the Middle East to shelter goats inside, while sheep, who are more resistant to the elements, can be left outdoors overnight. Now we will discuss today's gospel, Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. So before we go any further, I have to make a disclaimer. Despite what our first impression may be, the story of the sheep and the goats is far from being a straightforward passage to interpret. There are some serious brain-twisting issues in this story. Here are a few I've noticed. First of all, the phrase, the coming of the Son of Man in glory. What does this refer to? Now, the easy answer is the second coming of Christ. The liturgical calendar demonstrates that traditionally, the church has indeed understood what Jesus tells the disciples here as referring to the end times in our future. Liturgically speaking, today is New Year's Eve. This is the last Sunday of the church year, and next Sunday marks the beginning of the season of Advent. Advent has a double meaning for the church. First of all, Advent is the season when we travel backwards in time and join God's people during the era before Christ, and together with them, we await the birth of the Messiah at Christmas. However, Advent also has a second meaning. As the people of God AD, we are looking forward to a future event, that is to say, Christ's second advent, his return to judge the living and the dead, and to consummate his endless kingdom. The structure of the church's calendar encourages us to see in these gospel passages references to the second advent. However, this interpretation is not without difficulties, or at the very least needs to be nuanced based on an understanding of the first century Jewish hope. We have already seen that the disciples are concerned with the destiny of Israel, and that Jesus responds to their concern by talking about the coming of the Son of Man. However we interpret this phrase, we must take into account the context, which is Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple within one generation, and the disciples' concern to prepare themselves for this event. Next, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had sent out the disciples two by two and told them, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Matthew 10.23 According to this verse, the disciples will not complete their mission to Israel before the Son of Man comes. Next difficulty. In Matthew chapter 16, following Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus tells his disciples, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Matthew 16, 28. Some of the disciples will witness the coming of the Son of Man in their lifetime. Next difficulty. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus predicts the desecration and destruction of the temple, accompanied by the coming of the Son of Man, and says, This generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Matthew 24, verse 35. Indeed, there are other possibilities for interpretation. For example, 
How do we incorporate Daniel chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 13, which Jesus quotes in Matthew 24, 29 to 30? How do we square that with the long-standing second coming interpretation? Then again, we can ask, where does the Son of Man go from and where is he coming to? And should we interpret this phrase literally? Or perhaps there is some symbolic theological apocalyptic meaning. Food for thought. So first of all, there's the question of the phrase, the coming of the Son of Man in glory. And there are other questions that uh, this story of the sheep and the goats puts to us. So, who are all the nations, the sheep and the goats? Who are these people? Who are the least of these who are members of my family? This is what the king says in the story. Who are the least of these? And another question, since when is final judgment, eternal punishment or eternal life, based on whether one has performed the works of mercy, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, etc.? So these are all questions that this story of the sheep and the goats puts to us. Um, so today's gospel reading um, is a challenge for those who want to understand it. But let's see what we can do. So first of all, as far as the phrase, the coming of the Son of Man in glory goes, uh, I'm going to have to leave this question hanging. There is much that could be said, but due to the time constraints right now, we just can't go into it any deeper. Once again, if you want to pick this up with me later, it would be a pleasure. So let's look at the question of the fact that in the story, people's eternal destiny, whether eternal life or eternal punishment, is based on whether or not they had performed the works of mercy, feeding the hungry, visiting the imprisoned, taking care of the sick, etc. This aspect of the story is difficult because surely judgment is based on faith in Christ or the lack thereof. It seems like this passage does not quite sit comfortably with our theology. Now, it must be pointed out that Jesus is simply illustrating the classic Jewish concept of the final judgment, with the righteous receiving eternal life and the unrighteous inheriting eternal condemnation. However, Jesus is subverting the usual criteria for judgment, that is to say, observance of the Mosaic law and maintaining ritual purity. According to Jesus, taking mercy on the least of weighs more in the balance than adherence to the ritual minutiae of the Mosaic Law. We can call to mind the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke's Gospel. So who are all the nations? Who are these people divided like a shepherd divides or separates the sheep from the goats? Are these disciples of Jesus or non-believing Jews or Gentiles or a combination? Well, the phrase in Greek translated all the nations is panta ta etne. Now this phrase only occurs four times in Matthew's gospel, and each time it's used, it refers to all the Gentile nations of the world. And most of the time, it clearly refers to the nations towards which the disciples' mission will be directed. So who are the least of these who are members of the king's family? As I was preparing this homily, I started chatting on Facebook with a military chaplain colleague of mine who is a Jewish rabbi. He's one of those rabbis who reads the New Testament. I find that he understands the New Testament at a level that most Christians rarely attain because he is steeped in the Jewish mindset, culture, scripture, and tradition. My friend gets what Jesus is up to 
as a first century Jewish prophetic figure. I asked him what he thought of this story of the sheep and the goats, and he replied that it seems to indeed refer to the Messianic age and is a typical Jewish story of the ultimate destiny of Jews on the one hand and the goyim, or the Gentiles, on the other. So it appears that this is a story of the pagan nations according to how they have treated not simply Jews, but those members of the renewed Israel that Jesus is forming around himself and in which Gentiles are welcome to become members. Indeed, these Gentile members of the renewed Israel may have a faith greater than that of the ethnic members of the people of God. We can call to mind the story of the centurion whose servant Jesus had healed back in Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew 12, verse 50, Jesus said, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus insists that his true family are not those to whom he is related biologically, but rather those who follow him. So that would mean that the righteous in the story, the sheep, are those Gentiles who care for those followers of Jesus who experience persecution for their allegiance to Jesus. I believe that this entire section of Matthew's Gospel is a challenge for us concerning our priorities as Christians, and indeed a challenge to correctly discern what the Christian life is all about and how we should attempt to follow Jesus. Often we get into trouble because we ask the wrong questions. Like the disciples, we often seek to get some kind of edge, some kind of insight into what's going to happen in the future, so that we can come out on top, or at least not suffer too much when disaster strikes. The future is a frightening thing, and we try to remove as much of the mystery from it as we can. I mean, who could have foreseen, at the beginning of Advent 2019, what this year would bring? We have an instinct for self-preservation, for staying alive, yes, but also for maintaining our reputations and keeping our sense of status and significance intact. At the beginning of the book of Acts, the disciples ask Jesus a similar question to the one we've been considering today. And as it turns out, this question was also put to Jesus on the Mount of Olives, 40 days after the resurrection. And we can see this in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 3 and 12. So the disciples asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by authority. Acts 1, verses 6 and 7. As is the case with today's gospel, Jesus here responds not by giving the disciples an end-of-the-age calendar, but rather by sending them on a risky mission to make disciples in a dangerous world. We must remember that all of the events described in the book of Acts, which shows the beginning of the church's mission, occurred under the shadow of the impending doom that would befall Jerusalem, and that the disciples began to preach the gospel in the very city where power was held by those who had murdered Jesus, and they then continued to preach outside the familiar confines of the Holy Land in the wide world of imperial idolatry, violence, and corruption. However, at this point, 40 days after the resurrection, and before embarking on the mission which would begin at Pentecost, the disciples still have a self-referential, inward-focused approach to what it means to be the people of God. They ask, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, we're the people of God. The promises were made to our ancestors, and thus to us. We've been suffering for a long time. We're fed up, 
it's about time that things started to go better for us. Jesus then proceeds to expand the disciples' vision, to raise their eyes from looking, as it were, through a microscope, to obsess over the fate of their own nation, to looking, as it were, through a telescope, to wonder at the extent to which the love of the Creator reaches to the uttermost parts of the earth. The only consolation that the risen Jesus can offer to this ragamuffin band is the assurance of his presence, the power of his spirit, and the unfailing love of his Father. But isn't that enough? As Paul said to the Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3, 10-11 What is especially striking about today's gospel is the way in which the king, that is to say Jesus, identifies himself with the least of these. Remember what the risen Jesus said to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus? Why are you persecuting me? Whatever is done to a follower of Jesus is done to Jesus himself. This is an intimacy with Christ that we experience every waking moment, but can only begin to understand this side of eternity. When we suffer as a Christian, Christ suffers in us and with us. The book, The Hiding Place, chronicles the story of Cory and Betsy Ten Boom, Dutch Christians who sheltered Jews in their home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. Eventually, they were arrested by the Gestapo and sent to a concentration camp. Upon arrival at the camp, they experienced the first of a long series of humiliations. They had to strip naked and shower in a large room with all of the other prisoners. They also had to use the drain holes in the shower room as toilets. As they shivered under the cold water, Corey said to her sister, They took his clothes, too. Betsy would eventually die in the camp, shortly before the end of World War II. Corey was released due to a clerical error and spent the rest of her life traveling the world as, and this is, these are her words, a tramp for the Lord, preaching a gospel of grace, healing, and forgiveness. Corey and Betsy were recognized by the state of Israel as being righteous among the nations, a distinction awarded to Gentiles who helped save the lives of Jews during the Holocaust. This phrase, righteous among the nations, coined by the organization Yad Vashem, Israel's official memorial to Holocaust victims, fits well with today's gospel. Interestingly, there is no equivalent award for Jews who saved fellow Jews during the Holocaust. They are seen as having simply done what they were obliged to do for members of their own people. So Judaism recognizes Gentiles whose behavior demonstrates genuine love of neighbor as being righteous. This notion of righteousness within Judaism can help us better understand the righteousness of Christ that Paul speaks about in his letters. As Christians, we claim that our unrighteousness was imputed to Christ on the cross and that his righteousness was imputed to us through faith. To live as a justified person, that is to say, someone to whom the righteousness of Christ has been imputed, is not simply to kick back, secure in the knowledge that Jesus' perfection has been credited to my morality account, and that I am therefore destined for heaven. On the contrary, those who have truly understood their justification will live as justice people. They will hunger and thirst for justice, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Mother Teresa saw Christ in those who were dying of leprosy and loneliness in the gutters of Calcutta, India. 
This is an example of what justified people should do. As justified people, we are members of Jesus' family and are part of his purpose of making a new creation, a world of justice and peace, a world where the Sermon on the Mount is not a seemingly unattainable ideal, but simply the way things are. Just as the righteous in the gospel are shocked at being identified as such, they ask the king, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked? They were surprised. And just as they were surprised, sometimes the righteous of our own time are not to be found in the churches. Canadian singer-songwriter Bruce Coburn says, Jesus instructs us to love, to seek the divine in the everyday, to foment real peace and real freedom, to share bounty among the poor, and to challenge malevolent power, even if it means placing yourself at great risk. Now and then we run across a human being who actually does that. They don't always identify themselves as Christian. It seems like the main challenge of today's gospel concerns how we treat our sisters and brothers in Christ, those fellow members of the least of these. We must practice radical solidarity amongst ourselves. As Jesus said in John's gospel, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John 13 verse 35. The world is looking for something real. We must respond to this challenge because the credibility of the gospel we preach depends on it. And concerning the way we treat our fellow Christians, C.S. Lewis had this to say, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love, with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If she is your Christian neighbor, she is holy in almost the same way, for in her also Christ, glory himself, is truly hidden. As Henry Nouwen said, life is Advent. Life is recognizing the coming of the Lord. We must recognize Jesus in the faces of those who are in need of hope, those who are mourning the loss of a loved one, those who are depressed and who are expecting to spend another Christmas alone. Lord, open our eyes to recognize you in each other's eyes. Let us pray in closing. O Divine Master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.